All right, if you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 27. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Richard will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27. Right, starting in verse 21, we read, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. The title of my message this morning is A True Disciple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, knowing, Lord, that you have something prepared for us to to hear, to receive today, Lord. It's your plan, it's your purpose that you've gathered us together for such a time as this. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your Holy Spirit that speaks to our hearts through your word. We pray that you would just bless our time together, Lord. We pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has not yet surrendered their hearts and lives completely to you, Lord. They're not born again. We pray, Lord, that you would especially touch their heart today. We thank you for this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A litmus, litmus test. I found a story about a church that decided they wanted to do this litmus test to see where the people were at. And So come Sunday morning, on the church bulletin were these instructions. Hold this paper close to your nose and blow hard into the paper. If the sheet turns green, you need to see a doctor. If it turns blue, see your dentist. If it turns red, see your bank manager. If it turns black, you need to check your will, so see your lawyer immediately. If, however, it does not change color, then that means there is nothing wrong with you, so there is no reason why you should not be in church again next week. A litmus test. It's often given to measure how much a person has learned on any given subject. Well, chapter 16 has been that kind of test, if you would, for Jesus' disciples. And that Jesus started out in verse 13 by saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they responded, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus says, Okay. Then he turns to his disciples and says, Well, who do you say? That I am. Now Peter, no doubt, wanting to show Jesus all he's learned, he, he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And I think Jesus responded as much as Peter hoped he would have by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now we see Peter's triumph, but we also know, we just read it, that Peter's triumph is going to turn into Peter's tragedy. But the result of Peter's confession of Christ and passing this first litmus test 
would then prepare the way for Jesus to, to share with his disciples some hard sayings, some difficult sayings for them to grasp. In fact, uh, the Bible scholar and author F.F. F. Bruce calls this section of Matthew the hard sayings of Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, Peter rebukes Jesus. Number two, Jesus rebukes Peter. Number three, Jesus is called to discipleship. Number one, Jesus, or rather Peter, rebukes Jesus. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. See, right off the bat, Jesus is now informing his disciples what awaits him in Jerusalem. The the phrase from that time implies that that Jesus was now changing his teachings. Now that the disciples knew that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, a change in his teaching was necessary. Because the idea, what the disciples had of the Messiah, and what he would do is very different than the path that Jesus was about to take. Listen, most of the Jews, even today, they can't understand the idea of the suffering Messiah. Now, what Jesus was teaching was not all bad news. In fact, Jesus ended on a good note. He said he was to be raised the third day. But for the disciples, especially Peter, all they heard was the part about Jesus dying and suffering. And that didn't fit into their, into their concept of the Messiah. And so Peter steps out and it says in verse 22, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now I can picture Peter, this big, burly fisherman who, who loved Jesus, and Jesus is talking about his death, and, and you know, Peter's, man, he's going off of a high here. I mean, he just said, you know, Peter, man, you're doing great. And, and, and then so he says, Jesus, come here. i, I, I got to talk to you here. And, and he pulls him to one side and, and says, I know you're God in the flesh and all, and I know you're the Messiah and all things, but, but this whole thing, going to Jerusalem and, and, and dying, no, that's not going to happen. No, I don't want to see that, no. I'm convinced that, Jesus, that Peter really thought that he was helping Jesus out here. I also can't help but think that Peter thought he was about to get another attaboy, you know. Attaboy, Pete, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, you've done it again, way to go. That's why you're one of my favorite disciples. And I picture Peter looking at the other disciples as if to say, here it comes, here it comes. And Jesus turns to Peter and says in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Maybe Peter's face went from smiles to, oh. I picture maybe, you know, really embarrassed. You know how it is when you get embarrassed, your ears get all red and all warm and you wish you can crawl under a rock. And I think Peter probably felt that way. Because he struck out big time on this. It's interesting how we can be in the spirit one time and in the very next second we are in the flesh. How, how, how we can say what is of God in one breath and then turn around and say what is of man in the next breath. The problem is when we come to Christ, we become spiritually bipolar. And we do. It's called the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Sunday morning, you're worshiping the Lord and, 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 and praising the Lord. And Sunday night, you've kicked the cat and yelled at your wife. We all know you shouldn't yell at your wife. Okay, don't kick your cat either, okay? But that's just a frailty of humanity. It's such that we can move into times of revelation and deep understanding. The moments later, we're off the wall and out to lunch. How one minute a person can name the name of Christ and the next minute something horrible comes out of their mouth. 
It's not a chemical imbalance of the brain. It's a spiritual imbalance of the heart. It's it's that continual struggle that we all face between right and wrong, the flesh and the spirit. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5, 16-18, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The Bible says the flesh and the spirit, they, they war against each other. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. They're contrary to one another. And you know what? That battle never stops. I, I wish I could say it would, but no matter how long you've known the Lord, it doesn't stop. On one hand, you can speak under the inspiration of the spirit, but on the other hand, you can speak under the inspiration of the flesh. That's why we must guard our words and be careful because that battle persists. And poor Pete here. I mean, one minute he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the next moment he's speaking under the inspiration of the devil himself. And Jesus rebukes him for it. And that's our second point. Jesus rebukes Peter. Again, look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I'm pretty sure that disqualified Peter as our candidate for the very first pope here. I mean, one of the qualifications for the papacy is infallibility on spiritual matters. And obviously, if Jesus calls you Satan, you didn't get something right. Now, that's not to say that Peter was demon-possessed either. Don't use this scripture as, 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 you know, to teach that Christians can become demon-possessed. They can't. It's not biblical. That's not what's happening to Peter here. Jesus rebuked Peter because Peter was aligning himself with Satan's ways, Satan's philosophies. Remember when Jesus was tempted there in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4? And the devil came to him and said, I'll show you all the kingdoms of the world. They can all be yours if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said in Matthew 4.10, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan was telling Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. I got the title deed of the earth right here. You don't have to suffer and die for the sins of the world. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just, just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross. Instant gratification. Jesus refused, praise the Lord. But, but isn't that the, 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 the world in which we live in today? Everything is, I want it now. I've got to have it now. You know? and so Peter is saying the same philosophy. And Jesus says, I've heard that voice before. I recognize it. It's a voice of Satan because the philosophy that you're promoting, Peter, is a satanic philosophy. It's a philosophy of comfort and not sacrifice, of self-centeredness and, and not self-denial. Peter says to the Lord, spare yourself. You know, go for the comfort, not the sacrifice. And Jesus rebukes him. You're an offense to me for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And what that means, it's pretty easy to figure out. Sacrifice or comfort. It really is a choice. Most people, we we choose comfort. Most people run away from hardships. Most people run away from pain. Most people run away from sacrifice. That's just the way we are as humans. We do everything we can to avoid that and we push such a high priority on our personal comfort. But Jesus is saying, man, that way of thinking, you're thinking like a man, you're not thinking like God would have you to think. Sometimes doing things for the Lord takes us out of our comfort zone. 
you know, walking up and, and, you know, and sharing, you know, the gospel of someone downtown on the GOAT team, I mean, that could take us out of our comfort zone. I don't, I don't know. This guy is kind of scary. I, I, all right. I, okay, Lord, just give me the words to say. I'm uncomfortable about this, Lord. But the Lord gives you his spirit and then the power to go and do that. But see, we have to decide, Lord, it's not about my comfort. It's about me serving you. Help me, Lord, to think like you think, Lord. Peter meant well. And Peter was giving Jesus what he considered his best counsel. Don't go to the cross. Peter loved Jesus. Peter followed Jesus. But Peter's counsel was bad counsel. Now I want you to remember this. Not all of the counsel you're going to receive from well-meaning Christians is God-inspired. Be careful what you, what you hear. I mean, Jesus, Jesus even said, take heed to what you hear. Take heed to how you hear when you go to someone for advice or counsel, check it out with what the Word of God says. They may give you advice that sounds good. Oh, that, that sounds good. But what does God's Word say? Colossians 2.8 tells us, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now this brings us to our third point that we're going to camp out for the rest of the study, and that is number three, Jesus' call to discipleship. And this is where we get to really the, the hard sayings of Jesus. In verse 24, Jesus turns to his disciples and he lays out the litmus test of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus, speaking of the cross, and Peter trying to deter him from the cross, Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, Look, this may not fit in your concept of the Messiah, suffering and dying, but if you're going to follow me, it leads to the cross. And then he says, if you're going to follow me, then there, there are three things you must do. Jesus said, you must first, A, you must first deny yourself. You must deny yourself. Now, we don't hear a lot of that today, do we? The idea of denying oneself and taking up one's cross in order to be a disciple. I read someone calling it, it's like having self-denial in a selfie world. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is that radical or what? Is Jesus saying that we have to hate someone? And you know, in other places, he said we should love others. What is he saying there? What Jesus is saying there is that, that our love for God should be so great that in comparison to our love for our family, to our love for our friends, our children, our brothers and sisters, it should be as though we hated them or likened them to hate because we love God so supremely. Our love for Him is so strong. Listen very carefully. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are to love Him not only uh, before your wife or your husband or your children or other friends or relatives, you are to love Him above your own very self. And Jesus says, if you don't, you're not even fit or worthy to be called one of my disciples. Another definition of being a disciple, we find Jesus says in John 8, 31, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. So being a disciple means you're going to be a man or a woman of God's word. It's going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, cover your, your in life. God's, God's word is going to consume your life. One more, Luke 14, 33, we read Jesus saying, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciples. 
And truly, these are difficult sayings that we have a hard time with because we, we don't want to pay the price. We want an easy life. We don't like the self-denial stuff. And yet, it's the very first thing that Jesus tells us if we want to be a disciple is to deny ourselves. It's a foundational issue here. And really, we all have a choice in life. We can either live for ourselves or we can deny ourselves. Again, you don't hear many messages like that today. It seems I hear a lot of messages about the need for a positive self-image. I need to have a, a greater sense of self-worth. You know, I need to have self-love. I need to have more self-esteem. You, know, you hear that a lot. That's what I hear. But you see, Jesus is laying down the terms of discipleship that are for every single person who names the name of Christ. And the truth is, we don't like this doctrine because we live in a world that today is very, very self-centered. Everything we do is centered around ourselves. Social media, what's, about, what's it about? All about ourselves, our phones. We take selfies. When you look into a group picture, you know, what do you do? You look for yourself. Oh, well, what do I look like? Listen, the great barrier to being a disciple of Jesus Christ is summed up in one world, and that is self. If we want to be his disciple, we must deny ourselves. I read of one Christian author that said this. The Bible makes a person feel good about themselves. Christianity is an adventure of self-discovery that helps believers to become aware of their innate goodness. Really? What Bible are you reading? I mean, what about James 4, verse 8 and 9, where it says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I ask the question, does God want us to feel good about ourselves when we're living in sin? Do we need to have this self, you know, positive self-image if I'm disobeying God? And what about self-esteem? I read a bulletin blooper that said this, Low self-esteem support group meets Thursday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Please use the back door. <laughs> what about self-esteem? Well, it seemed like the Apostle Paul had a little bit of trouble with self-esteem. I mean, what kind of self-esteem is it to say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24. What kind of self-esteem is it when Paul says that I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. So, Paul, you have a problem with, with self-esteem. Or the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that story? They both went to the temple to pray and the Pharisee seemed to have pretty good self-esteem. He prayed, I thank God that I'm not like other men. But the tax collector wouldn't even lift his head, but just said, God, uh, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who did Jesus hear? The man with high self-esteem or the man with low self-esteem? The man with low self-esteem. Listen, this whole self-esteem stuff that's in the world today is definitely a belief system that, that is contrary, contradicts the clear teachings of Scripture. But see, God's Word said it would be like this in 2 Timothy 3.1. It says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Man, we're seeing that today. Now, it's not unique to our generation. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. There, when Satan came to Eve and essentially appealed to her selfish nature and said, Go ahead, eat of this fruit. And when you do, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when it comes right down to it, I mean, it goes back even further for Satan himself. His pride, his arrogance, his self-centeredness, you know, brought him down. Isaiah chapter 14, we have his self-centered attitude displayed for all to see. It says there in verse 13 and 14, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, 
I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He's got some serious eye problems going on there. Now the Lord said, you'll be brought down to the depths of the pit. Yeah, he had an eye problem that no optometrist or ophthalmologist would ever solve. And there's a lot of people today with, with the same eye problem. They're obsessed with self. But listen, the Bible doesn't identify low self-esteem as a problem. I don't think the greatest need for humanity is to have a, a good self-esteem. The Bible defines self-love as a problem. And they say, well, wait a minute, don't we need to love ourselves more? I mean, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Is he teaching that we need to love ourselves more? No, that's wrong. Jesus is teaching you already do love yourself. We don't have a problem with that. We, 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 we do love ourselves. So Jesus is saying you need to love your neighbors as much as you already obviously love yourself. And we do. I mean, look, look how long we spend in the mirror just getting ready to, to come to church in the morning and fixing your hair and getting this on. And, and you know, we love ourselves. I, I, I like this. There, there are people that say, well, no, no, I don't love myself. I hate myself. I'm ugly. I just don't like the way I look and I don't like my personality and I have no talent or ability. Well, if you really hated yourself, then you'd be happy about all of that. I mean, if you hated yourself, you know, I'm so happy. You'd be happy you're ugly. You're happy that you're not happy. You know, you're happy you have no talent. You're happy that you have a lousy personality because I hate myself and you could really care less. But see, that's not the problem. The problem is we love ourselves. And you're distressed by the fact that you're not the person you want to be. You see, you love yourself, I love myself, we all love ourselves, but that's why Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. He didn't say love yourself, he didn't say have a positive self-image, he didn't say you need great self-esteem, he said deny yourself. That's what we need to do, because that's, that, that's what gets in our way of a relationship with the Lord. That's why Jesus is telling our first step in being his disciple is self-denial. The self is dethroned, your goal, your plans, your ambitions have to be subject to God's perfect plan and will for your life. And what that simply means is I want God's will above my own. Now, I don't see the negative in this. You know, oh, deny myself. I've I got to give up all these things that I find enjoyable or pleasurable. I can't have any fun anymore. I've got to have this sour disposition. and I've got to be like Eeyore. Don't mind me. I'm just denying myself and following Jesus. That's not it. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You deny yourself, you're going to find life. You lose your life, you find it. That doesn't mean you're going to have a miserable existence. Quite the contrary. You'll live the, the, the most joyful, effective, powerful, abundant life possible because you will essentially exchange your life for the life that God has for you. You'll exchange your plans for God's plans. You'll say, not my will, but yours be done then that will bring you to the level that the Lord has for you, the level that life was meant to be lived. So he says, deny yourself. And number two, or B, he says, take up the cross. Now there's a sense in which that kind of means the same thing. But they also kind of build on top of each other. Because here, the idea of cross-bearing is not so much the yielding of your will, but the actual dying to yourself. Voluntarily taking on identification with Christ and his suffering, it means that you're willing for the cause of Christ to suffer any pain or any shame for whatever he may call you to do or to be. Listen, when Jesus says, take up your cross, it's not the inevitable problems of everyday life that people think it is. You know, you hear someone say, well, you know, I have a bad marriage and that's just my cross to bear. 
heard of one guy who said his mother-in-law wants his cross to bear. That may be a problem, but it's not your cross to bear. That's not what Jesus means. Take up your mother-in-law and follow me. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about some physical infirmity or a bad marriage or a boss or a job or something of that nature. But the cross that he's talking about is the same for every man and every woman. It's not just what bothers you or troubles you in life. The cross speaks of one thing, and the people of the culture Jesus was speaking to would have immediately recognized what that is. The cross speaks of death. I mean, today Jesus would have said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his electric chair and follow me. You know, today we don't see people with, you know, diamond studded electric chair necklaces, do we? You know, you, you don't, I don't think I've never seen an electric chair necklace. Go to Mardell's on, on sale, gold electric chair pins, you know, or nice pictures with an electric chair on it and a nice little verse underneath it. You don't hear songs about, oh, I remember that old rugged chair. It doesn't happen that way. It even sounds silly and strange because we associate an electric chair with death. But that's what it would have sounded like to the people that Jesus was talking to in his day. If you went downtown to Jerusalem to meet your friends and you were picking out some food for lunch and suddenly you heard the clanking of armor and, and saw a group of Roman soldiers come around the corner and behind them was this, this, this man carrying a cross, you would immediately know what was going on. You would know that this man was going to be crucified. He was going to die. And you would know it would be, wouldn't be long. It would be an excruciating, painful death. So when Jesus says, take up the cross, that would immediately got the attention of the disciples and even seemed offensive to them. What do you mean, take up the cross? What are you saying? Here's what Jesus is saying. It goes right back to self-denial. If you want to follow me, you need to deny, uh, you, you need to die to your ambitions. Die to your will. Die to your old ways. Die to your old sinful nature. And live the life that God has planned for you. That's what Jesus was saying to them. So what does that mean to us? Well, submitting my life to His will might mean the death of certain things in my life. Submitting to His will, my life might mean the death of a relationship that says I should no longer be in that relationship. Submitting to His will in my life might mean the death of a certain sinful habit that I cling to. It might mean a death to a a way of thinking. Submitting to his will in my life might mean the death of an attitude of bitterness or pride or self-sufficiency. But again, it's not a life of misery. It's life that's meant to be lived. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That doesn't sound like a miserable man to me. It's a joyous life. Samuel Rutherford, the author, he said this, quote, The cross of Christ is the sweetest burden that I ever bore. It is a burden to me such as wings are to to a bird or sails are to a ship to carry me forward to my harbor. See, Rutherford discovered that what what you can discover as well is that when you die to yourself, you find yourself. When you, when you lay aside your personal goals, desires, ambitions, that's when God reveals the desires and ambitions and the goals that He has for your life. And God's plans are so much better than mine. God's will is better than mine. Now, that doesn't always seem that way at first, does it? You know, you might be going through something and, and you go, oh, Lord, I don't know about this and I don't know about that. We don't understand. 
But as time passes, then we can say, well, Lord, you obviously knew what, what, what was going on here. You know what's best for my life. You knew what you were doing. And let me say this. No one can take up the cross for you. I mean, don't you wish as parents you could take up your cross for your children, but you can't do that. No one can take up the cross for you, and you can't take the cross for anyone else. There was Charles Spurgeon who rightly said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers here below. So picking up one's cross means that daily I'm going to die to myself in order to allow Christ to live his life through me. So that we eventually will come to that point in our Christian walk where we totally and fully can say, not my will, but yours be done. See, again, we don't like hearing, you know, about the cross. We'd rather hear about how to be successful in business or how to, how to overcome an eating disorder or how to be prosperous. We'd much rather have these nice pep talks in church and to talk about the cross. Because the cross means I need to die daily to myself in order to allow Christ to live his life through me. Again, it goes back to self-denial. It's making our relationship with Jesus our passion. The cross means that I'm to die to self and daily submit myself to his will. And finally, the third thing that Jesus says will determine if you truly are his disciples. He said, A, deny yourself. B, take up your cross. C, follow me. Now these words, deny himself, take up your cross, in the Greek, they're, they're, they're what's called, it's written in the aorist text, or tense rather. The aorist tense of the word simply means that it's a commitment we make once that lasts forever. So denying himself, take up your cross, is what's called the aorist tense of the word. But when it comes to the word follow me, that's in the present tense. And the difference there is that we keep making the decision to follow him daily. It's a daily thing. Now again, there's a sense that all these three things are, are combined into one. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Uh, they, they all mean kind of the same thing, just surrendering your life to Jesus. But if we are to look at this phrase, follow me, it carries the idea of following Jesus Christ as our model as we keep our eyes focused on him. Actually, the phrase means follow with me. Jesus is strongly communicating his desire for you to experience that friendship and that companionship that we can have in Christ. And as a disciple, it's necessary that you do that because we know that it would be so easy just to follow the world, follow the world's philosophies or worldly ideas or the ways of man or the ways of the flesh and not really follow Christ. You see, to follow Christ means the things that characterizes the life of Christ should characterize my life. In other words, that, what, that which is true of Jesus should be true of me if I'm following Christ. If I'm following Jesus Christ, then his life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit will be true of me, that I'll live my life in the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to walk in the power of the Spirit. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then I'm also going to have a love for the lost because Jesus had a love for the lost. I think so easily we can go, well, I'm saved and, and I'm going to heaven. I've got this fellowship of believers, the body of Christ. I like my church I go to. I'm, I'm comfortable and, and really going out and trying to win the lost. You know, I'm good, you know. Let other people worry about them. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus was moved with compassion. He was always reaching out to those who were lost and in need of help. He was always concerned about the harvest and laboring. Listen, if I'm following a follower of Jesus Christ, then his unselfish love for others will be true of me. And if I'm following Christ, then his sacrifice will be mine as well. See, this brings us back to our text in verses 25 to 27, where Jesus gives for us three closing reasons for denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. 
Notice that they all start with the word for. Look at verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. All three of those verses are reasons why we should deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Verse 25, he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, you hear people say, Well, I'm trying to find myself. Their biggest pursuit is self. Jesus says, If you want to find yourself, lose yourself. The secret, uh, the real secret to life is losing your life in Jesus. It's about allowing Jesus to have free rule and reign in your life. As John the Baptist said, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. You know, the world says, be all you can be. Jesus says, follow me and let me make who you who I want you to be. To lose yourself in Christ is where you find life. Far too many people today name the name of Christ, you know, they, they claim to know him, but they say, oh, I follow Jesus, but, but their actions, what they're really saying is, I do what I want. I just do what I want. I think of the young man that, that came to Jesus and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, foxes have holes and birds in the air of nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Do you know that guy turned around and, and went in the other direction? Oh, second thought, I won't follow you. Then another guy came, and this time Jesus said, follow me. And the guy said, Lord, I really want to follow you, but permit me to bury my dad first. I mean, the poor guy's, you know, dad's dead, and he wants to bury him. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Oh, that's, that's pretty harsh. I mean, the poor guy's dad is, is dead. And all he wants to do is bury him. No, that's not the case. The dad wasn't dead. The young man simply was saying, I'm not ready to leave home yet. I'm not ready to break those ties. Let, let, when my dad gets all old and eventually dies, then maybe I'll follow you. Jesus said, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You come follow me. Another guy came to Jesus and Jesus said, follow me. And the guy said, Lord, can I just go home and take goodbye to my family? Now, what's wrong with that? Jesus said, no man after putting his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Because what that guy was saying was, Lord, me first. I mean, that's an oxymoron in itself. You can't say, Lord, me first. If he's the Lord of your life, you will follow him. Now, you can go out and try to find your life. You could party. You could do things that you thought you always wanted to do, and, and you'll lose out. How much better to lose your life to really find what life is all about? See, it's all about Jesus. And here's the irony. The more you live for yourself, the more miserable you'll be. But the more you say, Lord, I'm going to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to live for you completely, wholeheartedly, and totally. Well, then the more abundant life you'll have now and on in eternity. Then Jesus gives a second rationale. He says in verse 26, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, how satisfying do you think it will be to be the richest man in hell? How satisfying do you think it will be to be the smartest man in hell? See, if you think attaining all the, these highest ambitions, you lose your soul, how does that help you for eternity? What does it profit you? It was J.D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the world at one time. When he died, a reporter asked the estate manager, how much did Mr. Rockefeller leave behind? The answer, everything. Can't take it with you. There's no U-Hauls in heaven. 
Paul the Apostle in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 22 through 24 said this, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count myself my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I don't count my life dear to myself. All I want to do is finish the course, finish the path that God has set before me. Jim Elliott, along with other missionaries, were called foolish because they tried to go to the Ecuadorian jungle because they wanted to reach out to the Alca Indians. And later, he and all the other missionaries were all martyred, speared to death, killed by trying to reach these very primitive people. But here's what Jim Elliott said. He said, no man was a fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. If you gain the whole world, Jesus said, and yet lose your soul, it profits you nothing. And then finally, the third reason we should deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, he says in verse 27, we'll close with this. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. I like the way Luke puts it in his Gospel, chapter 9, verse 26. Luke adds this. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in His own glory and in His Father's and of the holy angels. I like that because we know that there are Christians who try to be secret agent Christians. They believe in Jesus, but they just don't want other people to know about it. They don't want to be vocal about their faith. They don't want to bring up the Bible because it might offend someone, and they don't want to be you know, looked at as a, as a fanatic. But Jesus says, listen, you can't be my disciple and be ashamed of me at the same time. If you don't take seriously Jesus' call to the cross to deny yourself to follow after him, then you're not going to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, these, are, these are heavy things. These are, are, are words that our flesh doesn't like to think about or hear, and, and we don't like to stop and think about self-denial and cross-bearing and following Christ and obedience daily and surrendering our life to Him. These are hard things to preach about. But, but you see, it's a litmus test for all of us to see where we are at this morning. And we need to ask the Lord this morning to show us where our hearts are at, because if you're a believer today, there's only one kind of believer. If you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ, there's only one kind, the kind that denies himself, or herself, takes up your cross and follows Christ. I mean, have we been claiming that we have a relationship with Him without truly giving our lives completely over to Him? Have you been trying to find happiness by chasing after worldly pursuits? Have you attempted to find fulfillment through what this world has to offer? If so, Jesus has a word for you which counsels you. Go the other way. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow Him. Then you'll be a true disciple. You know, when a person comes to Christ, genuinely meets Jesus Christ, he or she cannot leave that old life fast enough. Those old habits, those old, old standards, old practices are no longer appealing to you. Your old desires come up empty, unfulfilling, and you realize it, 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 you gladly leave it behind. That's if you're truly following Jesus. As we close this morning, maybe you're here and Jesus has invited you to come and follow him, but you've never really made that break from the world and, and your old ways. Jesus is calling you out this morning. He wants to be your Lord and your Savior of your whole life, not just a part, but he also wants to be your friend and, and, and companion. And he's saying to you this morning, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. 
And as you do, as you give him your plans and your goals and your future, he will exchange it for his plans and his goals for your life and his future for you. As Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God's got a great future for you, and it's good. His thoughts towards you are thoughts of peace. But it all comes back down to down to the cross and what Jesus did for you upon the cross. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that you, 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 you don't leave here without making that commitment to him. And if you do, but you haven't been completely sold out to him, there's a wake-up call for all of us. Lord, I need, to, I need to give it all away. I need to lose it all for you, Lord. Whatever it takes, deny myself, take up the cross, and follow you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that shows us within our lives, Lord, what we need to work on, Lord. And Father, I pray if there's areas in my life and our lives, Lord, that, that we are not denying ourselves, and Lord, we're, we're actually maybe feeding our flesh instead of putting to death our flesh. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to turn from it, Lord, and turn towards you. Lord, if we're not uh, crucifying that flesh, Lord, help us to see it. Lord, help us to follow after you wholeheartedly, holding nothing back. Lord, help us to be focused on you. And Father, finally, if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, I pray, Lord, that they would do so this morning. That come to know you as Lord and as Savior. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.